2016 was something of an annus horribilis for political journalism. I hereby give notice that I have certified the following. The UK has voted to leave the European Union. Most of us failed to see the Brexit referendum result coming. Britain's shock decision to leave the European Union. The British people have made a very clear decision to take a different path. But then came an even bigger surprise that few of us managed to predict, despite it being foreshadowed by Brexit. I think it's going to be a Brexit plus, plus, plus. Does that make sense? Plus, plus, plus. Three years later came the trifecta in the Australian federal election. The view was almost universal that the Labour leader, Bill Shorten, was about to become the Prime Minister. I have always believed in miracles. But Scott Morrison ended up keeping his job. How good is Australia? So were our failures part of a larger problem? Do we have blind spots as political journalists? Why are we misreading the mood of our nations? with Australia about to go to another federal election. They're questions well worth asking. I'm Nick Bryan, and this is Journo, a podcast from the Judith Nielsen Institute for Journalism and Ideas. We're taking a closer look at how news is made, how news is disseminated, how news is consumed, and the biggest challenges and the biggest opportunities facing our industry. who have won a great victory tonight. I'm Lenore Taylor. I'm the Editor-in-Chief of Guardian Australia. I've been doing that job since 2016. But before that, for my sins, I spent about 30 years in the Federal Parliamentary Press Gallery. Lenore, I want to talk about the last federal election. I, I remember tuning in that night from New York City and I expected to wake up that morning to the news that Bill Shorten had won, that the Labour leader had become the new Prime Minister. And I watched ABC's coverage, and its highly respected election expert, Anthony Green, was actually projecting a win for Scott Morrison. But at this stage, it's very hard to see anything other than the coalition staying in government. But what we don't know is whether that can be a minority or a majority government. I think what we're saying more clearly is we can't see Labour forming government on the numbers we're seeing at the moment. And I thought... Anthony Green's got it wrong. This can't be. But he got it right. I wonder what your recollections of that night are. Yeah, it was uh, quite evident from quite early in the night that pretty much everybody had got it wrong um, and that there wasn't a pathway for Labor to win the election, even though that's what all the polls had predicted, even though that's what the campaign directors were expecting. It was a big, big upset. Scott Morrison spoke that night of the quiet Australians and how they had lifted him to victory. Was that part of the problem? Journalists weren't just listening quite attentively enough to those quiet Australians. I think it's more complicated than that, although that is part of it. One of the real lessons for us uh, went to polling and how we interpreted polling. I think, though, there was a big shift in the last week of the election and there was a greater than normal portion of the electorate that was absolutely disaffected and disengaged. They weren't just kind of leaning one way or leaning the other. They had not tuned in till the very end. 
I think Bill Shorten sort of thought he had it in the bag and let up on his the pace of his campaigning at the very end. Scott Morrison didn't. And those disaffected voters or disengaged voters, when they tuned in right at the end of the campaign, broke Scott Morrison's way and that's what made the difference. But I do think for journalists, one of the biggest things we needed to consider after that election was both how we conducted polling and how we interpreted it. Because that was really what led a lot of people to have an expectation of a very easy Labor win. Now, those comments come as the latest news poll out this morning has Labor just clinging on to its narrow lead over the coalition. Now, Not just in this poll, but in every poll. In fact, in every poll for the last two years, it's pointed to a Labor victory, sometimes larger, sometimes smaller. Things are tightening as we get towards the end of this race. As the prime... I've never been in a country that puts so much emphasis on polls. A string of bad polls in Australia can lead to what's called a leadership spill here, a prime minister actually losing his job. The publication of polls almost seems to me like a quasar news event sometimes. They often come out late on a Sunday night. There's this massive buzz. They're very frequent. They really sort of create the political weather in Canberra. Do you think that's a fair criticism that we are far too poll-centric in this, this country, Australia? Yeah, I think it's absolutely a fair criticism. And we did a lot of soul-searching and thinking and changing of how we presented polls after the 2019 election for that very reason. I think polls are too often presented as if there's some sort of golden answer as to who is definitively ahead or who is going to win an election. And I think um, that led us in the 2019 campaign to accept the idea or the consensus that the two-party preferred result in the poll indicated some sort of big enthusiasm for change, a resolution for change on the part of the electorate, even though it jarred with what our reporters were saying they felt when they were out in the electorate. And even though, you know, you could feel that there was a lack of enthusiasm for Bill Shorten, we all assumed that the polls must be right. And so after the election, I had a lot of discussion with Peter Lewis, who runs our Guardian Essential poll, you know, because as you say, prime ministers lose their jobs on the basis of polls. We have a responsibility both to make them as accurate as we can and to present them as accurately as we can. Lenore, when you conducted your post-mortems after the election, I mean, polling was obviously one focus, but did you look at anything else? Where your footprint was, for instance, in Australia? Had you spent too much time focusing on the leaders? Had you looked upon this as a kind of presidential campaign to the detriment of speaking to normal people? We tried not to do that last time, and I think it was the right call, and we will try even harder not to do that in the next election campaign. So we've never gone on the Prime Minister and Opposition Leaders' buses and we won't be. I think everything the Prime Minister and the Opposition Leader says on an election campaign is broadcast in real time. The only thing you miss out on by not being on the buses is, you know, those sort of hard to predict events, you know, a pie in the face, a heckler, whatever. Well, we can do without that. And you miss out on the spin from the minders and I'd rather not have that. You do miss the chance to ask questions, but there are so few of them and they are so managed that I think we can live without that and we deploy our resources to try to understand how people are thinking and feeling in electorates. And we try really hard to concentrate more on policy than on the horse race, if you like, because really elections are decided at an electorate by electorate level, you know, in hand-to-hand combat in electorates. And in a way that sort of national campaign is the background music. 
I mean, what you're saying there is really interesting. At a time when politics really is being nationalised, and, and we see that around the world, in America and Britain, to the same extent, you're saying that the politics should very much be covered in a local way. It's that kind of all politics is local idea. Yeah, I suppose. I mean, obviously, national policies are important, and we will cover national policy announcements and the things that leaders say are important, and we will cover them. But I think you've got to be very attentive to what's happening at a local level as well, because I think it's actually more decisive in the end for the campaign. One criticism that often gets made of politics coverage everywhere, not just in Australia, is that we cover it like sport, that we provide a commentary on who's up and who's down. We provided a daily scorecard, almost. I mean, that that struck me as, as particularly so in Australia during that extraordinary period where you seem to change prime ministers every few months. Do you think that's a problem? Yeah, I do think it's a problem. I absolutely do. I mean, obviously, if you're in the press gallery, that has to be part of your job. You know, if a prime minister is about to lose their job, you do need to report on that. But I think it is often an easier lazier route than actually analysing policy. I think the press gallery over the 30 years that I worked there was hollowed out. When I started, most bureaus had subject area experts. So you would have the health reporter and the education expert and the Indigenous affairs expert and the environment expert in each bureau. And those reporters really understood that policy area increasingly the bureaus are so small that that's not possible anymore. And if you're not a subject area expert, the easiest thing to do is to report on the horse race or to just report on how something plays, how something is perceived rather than what it actually is. And reporting on what it actually is is more important than ever. And I guess the other thing that we have to admit to, and mere culpa, I mean, I've felt this sense of excitement as well, is Covering a leadership change, covering a prime ministerial change is fun. I mean, there's a lot of journalistic entertainment value attached to it. Well, it's not just fun. It's also dramatic. I mean, it's dramatic. There's a lot of emotion in the building when a leadership change is going on. People are elated or upset. It's kind of Shakespearean sometimes. People have to make decisions that they will really dwell on for the rest of their lives. I don't think there's anything wrong with reporting on that drama. I think people do want to know about it. It is important to know how decisions are made about who the leader of the country is, how you can go to bed one night with one prime minister and wake up the next day with a different one. Like that is a legitimate part of our reporting. I just think it can't be allowed to overtake, overshadow, overwhelm reporting on policy and other things which are really critical to people's lives. I guess that it becomes questionable when we drive that drama, not just report on it, Mm -hmm. but sort of create that drama through our reporting, through reporting of backroom disquiet, of palace gossip, we kind of create a dynamic ourselves. Mm. And often journalists do like to write storylines that that kind of comport with the the drama that they enjoy seeing. And and I wonder whether we're part of the problem in in that sort of coup culture that's developed in Canberra over the last few years. Well, I do think journalists should think very carefully about anonymous source stories. When I was growing up in journalism, the rule of thumb was you needed two, if not three, anonymous sources who you believed to be independent in order to run an anonymous source story. In particular, during leadership destabilisation times, because the destabilizers can and always do try to use the media to create the outcome 
that they want to create to, you know, assert that the numbers are growing, that they've got X numbers of votes against whichever leader they're plotting against. And unless you're really sure that it's true, by reporting that you can be used to attain the outcome. And I don't think that's healthy and I don't think it's right. One of the criticisms that gets levelled against political reporting and news organisations more broadly is they're very metropolitan focused. We are not particularly good about picking up trends that happen outside of London or outside of Washington or, or outside of Canberra or Sydney or Melbourne. And I'm intrigued that The Guardian in Australia and America has started to take a very different approach. Your your footprint is changing. In America, it's meant putting reporters in in the heartland of America. In Australia, you've really beefed up your regional reporting locally. Yeah, I think it's really important. And it was a dilemma, really, because, you know, I have limited resources. If I want to do reporting across rural and regional Australia, where do I put a correspondent? I need a correspondent in many different places. So the solution we came up with was to sort of set up a network. So we've appointed a rural and regional editor, Gabrielle Chan, who's sort of had a long history with The Guardian, but also lives on a farm out at Harden in New South Wales and has written two incredibly well-received books about the relationship between rural and uh, urban Australia and about farming, because she and her husband run a farm. Um, So she's perfectly positioned to be our rural editor. And then we've set up a network of uh, independent reporters and freelancers and collaborations with independent news media across rural Australia so that we've sort of got eyes and ears in lots of places where we're never really going to have a full-time correspondent. Canberra is in a small little enclave in southern Australia, but Australia is one of the most decentralised countries in the world. I mean, we're spread out across this vast continent, mostly on on the coastlines, but there's a whole bank of different views and interests and needs. A lot of them don't dovetail into the concentration of power in metropolitan Australia. In Australian politics, the northern state of Queensland is often a key battleground, with most of its population outside of the capital, Brisbane, and the economy driven by mining, it's a barometer for regional opinion. They never mention the cost of not getting into renewables and they never mention energy prices, do they? You know, this is a government who every quarter used to rush out for the last three years to energy prices are going down. Well, that lie's been exposed. When the Labour Party, led by Bill Shorten, campaigned on a progressive climate policy in 2019, they found themselves on the wrong side of their traditional constituents, coal miners. Watching all this was Michael McKenna, the Queensland Bureau Chief of The Australian, the Murdoch-owned national daily newspaper. Queensland has always been a really important state. For Labor to win, uh, it needs to pick up seats in Queensland. So this was a target area for the coalition. But while the polls were suggesting one thing, we were hearing different things on the ground. As Bureau Chief, I was talking to people and my team of political reporters were talking to people in the regions in those seats which are so heavily dependent on mining. And those seats also happened to be the seats being targeted by Labor that they needed to win. And there was a great distrust we found on the ground that showed that voters hadn't been sold on Bill Shorten and Labor at the time. 
Did you suspect that prior to the election, that the polling wasn't accurately reflecting what you were hearing on the doorstep? Well, I don't think you've been able to trust them for a while. I think there have been an, an, an unnecessary evil in the political process and landscape in Australia. I think it's been a cancer, to be honest, in our, in our political landscape for a very long time. You described it as a cancer in politics, but I wonder whether it's a cancer in journalism as well. Yeah. Well, we're, we're sort of the original cell, aren't we? We're the force that spreads, uh, that spreads it. So we're as guilty. I mean, Michael, you know, there's going to be an election here fairly soon. What are the lessons we learnt from last time out and how can we improve things next time out? I think, one, don't rely on the polling too much. It's a good guide, but it can't be everything. Two, there needs to be better polling, and we need to look at people's second votes because often they are the votes that count. I think it's really important to get on the ground, and this is this great conundrum that's happening in journalism across the world covering political campaigns where you've got the bubble. So you are guided around by those leaders and their staffers. You get up in the morning, you're texted, get down on the bus, and then you're on the bus, and then you you go off to wherever destination. You do the press conference and the walkthrough of somewhere. You're often ill-prepared because they don't tell you where you're going because they don't want it to leak, so protesters will show up. So you're often ill-prepared for the actual policies of the day. You are captive to the leader and that campaign. And you get that sort of, it's a mixture of a Stockholm syndrome and a, and a mushroom factor. I'm mixing metaphors here, but it's a bit like that. And that has to be done. I mean, you've got to put questions to the leaders and you've got to follow them around. But the danger is to rely too much on that, on the gimmickry and the theatre of the so-called presidential campaigns. And there needs to be more work done out on the field talking to people, finding out what the issues are, because often it's not what the leaders are saying that will decide a seat. I just think there needs to be more reporters, even though there's cost constraints in this media landscape. I mean, the last 20 years, certainly in Australia, the senior reporters don't go on the road. Very rarely do you see the significant contemplatives or hard-hitting political reporters being on the road because they shouldn't be shackled and controlled but that's the case is those on the road they're giving away all all of their control to these these campaigners and the only time they actually get to be a journalist is when that leader gets up in front of the microphone and you can pepper them with questions and either unsettle them or try and get to the nub of the issue which is very hard it's very hard to break a story in that bubble so you've got to cover that pantomime it's a necessary pantomime but then media organizations really need to spend their money and their effort on having people out across the states across the country testing policies getting the vibe Getting more reporters in local communities to find out what's really going on is obviously vital. But do our newsrooms reflect and represent the very people we're trying to understand? You ever seen a journalist going to a country town? <laughs> it's just like a city journalist going to a country town. They stick out like, uh, I was going to say something else there, but they are uh, like a sore thumb. Uh, and it's kind of embarrassing. And like even myself when I go home, like, you know, I'm from the country, but I'm not of the country in the same way that 
you know, my family are. And so when you already don't trust an institution, you're certainly not going to extend that trust to the individual avatars of that institution, such as the media or the journalist that comes to town, to discover what the real town thinks. That's Rick Morton, a senior reporter for the Saturday paper. And one of the things that's intriguing about Rick is his backstory. Yeah, it's a, it is a little bit unusual even for modern-day Australia. But, you know, I grew up on a cattle station in outback Queensland, 1,000 square kilometres large, which was actually kind of small. And my dad's family were all from a long line of cattle graziers, essentially. So about as outback and western Queensland as you can get. Parents divorced when I was quite young. My brother was horribly burned in this accident on the station and I was raised by my single mum and with my much younger sister and my older brother recovering from burns and we spent the rest of our lives kind of growing up in poverty while mum tried to hold the family together. And so we moved to a little country town which was only an hour southwest of Brisbane called Boona, but it might as well have been 10 hours because no one left Boona to go to the city ever unless you're on a school excursion. And from there I kind of went to this state public high school and got a scholarship to Bond University, which is, as you know, one of the only private universities in Australia, a very weird place. But it came with a job in journalism, which is the one thing I always really wanted to do. And your story is germane, Rick, because not many people of your kind of background end up working in newsrooms. And when we're talking about how we understand the countries that we cover, I suspect that's a big part of the problem. Yeah, and I, you know, I make this point in my first book, 100 Years of Dirt. In fact, I dedicate a whole chapter to this problem of newsroom experience and, and journalist experience. But you can't be expected to understand, as a journalist, the people you're writing about unless you've got access to that background or if you've come from a similar background. I'm Now, in my case, I'm writing about class and, and kind of your social situation in life, but it's equally true to say the same thing about race or culture. Um, and we just don't do those things very well anymore. Now it's becoming increasingly important to get into a newsroom that you have some kind of degree, you have some kind of access to the right family or some connection. And, of course, it used to be a little bit more fair and free. Now, I think your book is really interesting because it has drawn analogies with a book that was very influential in 2016 during the rise of Donald Trump, and that was J.D. Vance's Hillbilly Elegy. And a lot of journalists I was with at the time when I was covering that race, uh, they were reading J.D. Vance and thinking, yeah, I figured out the Rust Belt. And I understand that something similar was happening with your book in Australia. Yeah, look, I mean, a lot of politicians, particularly when I was in Canberra at the time when the book came out, were coming up to me saying, hey, I think I understand your people now in the same way that they felt they understood the Rust Belt when they read Hillbilly Elegy. And of course, my book is very different to Hillbilly Elegy because I think we come from it, uh, come away from our life experiences with very different tales to tell about what it is that got us where we are. And that's the thing that worried me that I think a lot of the politicians and leaders in our country missed is that this is not an individualist story. This is um, a collectivist tale about the ways in which people from, you know, marginalised backgrounds are let down over and over again. And I think that's a key point to make, isn't it? You can't just read about this stuff. You have to immerse yourself in that stuff. You have to spend time in communities. And inevitably, the, the people who best understand those communities are the people who grew up in those communities. Yeah. And even then, I mean, it is possible to grow up in those communities and then move away from it later on in life, right? Because I'm 34, I'm now middle class on paper. 
I've been working in the media for my entire adult life. So I've got the cultural capital in theory. And certainly, you know, my, my income on paper is great. But the thing that still keeps me anchored in that world is my mum, who never got to make it out of poverty and who still lives in stress and who I still support financially. I'd pay her rego on her car. I bought her her car, all of these things. And, and that's not her fault. It's because she gave up everything to get her kids out. But that's not a common story that someone like myself is now in a position where he gets to tread those two worlds. Now, because the media doesn't fully understand these communities, there's a danger that we misrepresent these communities, that we caricature these communities. I always remember covering an Australian election campaign. I went to Penrith in the western suburbs of Sydney. It's a crucial battleground, of course. And I was doing a story about how immigration was overshadowing the election. The best thing you can do is stop the boat. We stop the boat by hook or by crook. And if stopping the boats means being criticised because I'm not giving information that would be of use to people smugglers, so be it. I think we've demonstrated in the way we have uh, stopped stop, stop, stop the boats uh, with our commitment to countering Islamist death cults. Only this government can keep them stopped. And I saw this guy jumping out of a white ute. That's a pickup truck. He had tattoos all over him. He was wearing a singlet. I thought, here is a guy who will talk to me about asylum seekers. It will be in the forefront of his mind. And I was guilty, of course, of stereotyping him. And when I spoke to him, he didn't seem interested in asylum seekers at all. Indeed, the only person that day who said asylum seekers was the paramount issue was the Labour Party candidate. And I think that's a problem because when we present a distorted sense of these communities, we get a distorted politics as well. Yeah, it's true. And there's a bit of a causality loop as well because the more the picture is distorted, particularly in the commercial media, and the more people who ordinarily would never have cared about these issues are suddenly then imbibing these issues through the commercial media, the more the media then seeks to reflect that thing. But it, it's it's actually a you know, a crisis of confidence or distortion that it caused in and of itself. And so you can get trapped. I mean, Scott Morrison loves to call it the Canberra bubble. And in doing so, you know, dodge all responsibility for shenanigans and, and things that are going on in Canberra or in politics. But there is an element of truth to it. And that's why he gets away with using it so often. It's because you can create whole fictions about the world out there, quote-unquote, from the seat of power and, you know, if you're not surrounded by people who have their finger on the pulse or who have access to those worlds, then you can very easily get sucked into believing your own spin, I think. Talk to me about working in that Canberra bubble because you did for, for many years for the Australian newspaper. Did you often feel a little bit of a kind of journalistic loner yeah. in that <laughs> environment? Yeah, I did. I remember. So, I mean, I was, you know, I was always covering politics to some degree. But in the end, I only spent a year and a half in Canberra in Federal Parliament House. And I remember I was only meant to go down for four months when I was at the Australian to cover for a colleague who was going on long service leave. And I put up such, I mean, I chucked my toys out at the court, essentially, because I'm like, I'm a social policy reporter. I've never wanted in my life to cover politics in the way that we cover politics. I think all politics is personal, but I don't give a toss about the he said, she said of the day and never have, only insofar as it affects policy. And so I said that to them. I'm like, I'll go, but I'm not going to run into the Senate chamber to take notice of some kind of procedural vote and I'm not going to run out to every press conference 
that every politician does on the issue of the day because I'm going to be breaking stories in my round, which is social affairs. And so that's exactly what I did. But it wasn't, it never would be an effective strategy if you wanted to be a political journalist because, I mean, you know, with a few rare exceptions, I mean, I just didn't get involved in that life at all. I didn't go out to dinners with the politicians during sitting weeks. I didn't sidle up to them and try and get exclusives. Rick, as you say, you've spent an awful lot of time dealing with policy. And and what always strikes me about your reporting is how you try and translate how policy will impact people's lives. I think a criticism that you've made is that sometimes policy gets reported on in very abstract terms. Is that an issue as well? Yeah, I think that's one of my key criticisms is that where policy does feature, particularly at a parliamentary level, where it does get mentioned in the reporting is only to serve that that higher narrative, which is who won the day. So it's, you know, will Scott Morrison or the coalition get this legislation through the parliament becomes literally just about whether they will get this through the parliament. And if they lose that vote, um, how does that reflect on his leadership? When really it's like there's so little reporting on what the legislation actually does. Um, even though there are, you know, reams of committee inquiries through the parliament about how, you know, changes to social security legislation will affect people on welfare, how changes to the National Disability Insurance Scheme Act, which are currently before the parliament, will actually affect people. Now, of course, it just becomes then about the imprimatur of the prime minister and do they have the numbers, which is not the story as far as I'm concerned. It never has been. It's what does that mean for people? And I guess that encapsulates the problem. This disconnect between the political coverage in Canberra and how it impacts people's lives beyond the Australian Capital Territory. Yeah, and because of the way I grew up, you know, with this single mother who I heard on the phone to Centrelink all the time in interactions that were so cruel and scarring that they could sour the mood of our entire family for a month until we found out whether we'd get child support again from a different agency or whether the Centrelink single parent payment was going to be reinstated because of some clerical error. Like, these things actually changed our lives, for better and worse, mostly worse. (laughs) I mean, this is the stuff that really, really matters to people. And the thing that I've always been frustrated with as a journalist is how difficult it is to get these stories up in the first place, as in past the editors, but even then to get the readers involved because, again, it's very exciting and thrilling to read an account of politics that feels like an F1 race. But it's also, it's kind of like eating chocolate. It's like, yeah, it's great, but at some point you're going to need a meal. So that's how I've always viewed policy in journalism. And it's also the, the place where you have the ability to profoundly change something even if it's just to tell someone who's affected by these systems that their experience has been listened to. I'm Jay Rosen. I teach journalism at NYU and I write the blog called Press Think. Jay, one of your most successful essays, one of your seminal essays was entitled why political coverage is broken. And it was actually inspired by a trip that you made to Australia. What was it about the reporting down under that troubled you so much? Well, I just recognized it so well as the same sort of insider or game coverage, master of the game coverage that we're so familiar in the United States. And then 
when I learned about the ABC program, The Insiders, which Nick, correct me if I'm wrong, is still on the air, and that The Insiders were supposed to be the journalists, it just struck me as odd. And I remember talking to like people in Australian journalists, don't you think that's a little weird? And they're going, yeah, I guess I see your point. And I felt that that little practice there of calling the journalists the insiders was a clue. And that it was a clue to things that were out of alignment. That's the way I put it, out of alignment. One of the things that I've noticed, Jay, over the years as somebody who's covered uh, presidential elections in in America most recently is a pressure to predict. In covering politics like a game and in trying to display to our audiences that we understand the mechanics of that game, the next step is to basically tell our listeners and readers and viewers what the outcome is going to be before the outcome is even known. It's an excellent point. And in fact, that particular practice, predicting, which is really preempting the voters, it's very difficult to understand what the legitimation of that is. Like, what is the argument for it? Why is it necessary? What does it add? How does it engage news readers, news listeners, and viewers? It's a really weak practice. It's one of those practices that persists without a purpose. The present model is broken, Jay. Is your prognosis how do we fix it? Well, specifically for election coverage, I, I have been urging upon journalists around the world a very simple alternative model. This is not the answer to the problems that we've discussed. It's not the solution. You know, it's, there's nothing magic about it. It's just a different way to start. And I call it the citizen's agenda model for election coverage, which is what the originators of it, the Charlotte Observer in 1992, called their project. And it simply starts in a different place than horse race coverage. Horse race coverage starts with who's the favorite to win and who are the other possibilities and what are going to be the trends that shape this campaign and who are the key players. Those are the kinds of questions you ask when you begin your horse race coverage. Well, in the Citizens Agenda, you start in a different place. You ask the people you're trying to inform, Nick, what do you want the candidates to be talking about as they compete for votes? Not who do you think is going to win, not even what is your top issue, not are you with the reds or the blues, but what do you want the candidates to be talking about and examining seriously as they compete for votes? And where would citizen agenda journalism lead us? More coverage of of policy? And if so, what sort of policies have we been neglecting? It's not exactly policy versus what we sometimes call in the United States, you know, or eat your vegetables journalism versus popcorn, which is not a serious competition. A good way to understand it is to employ a distinction that C. Wright Mills, the American sociologist, used in the 1950s between what he called troubles and issues. He says, troubles are things that bother people in their immediate lives, things that they worry about with their spouses and families, things they talk about over the kitchen table. Those are troubles. Issues are formed by the political system to win elections and to move boulders and to mobilize energy, right? They have tactical value, but they're packaged by political professionals. And when issues don't speak to people's troubles, 
and troubles don't connect to the issues, you have a crisis of democracy. Do you think this citizen's agenda journalism would actually produce a better democracy, or would it simply reflect the the polarized state of America, the fact that 74 million people clicked on the terms and conditions of the Trump presidency? Earlier in this edition, we were talking about the danger of caricaturing electorates, making them sound worse than they are, um, appealing to their baser instincts. But I wonder whether citizens' agenda journalism risks caricaturing them in a different way, to, to think that they are nobler than they truly are. Uh, that could be, sure. Um, and it could be that they that voters are reached by propaganda tactics so effectively that your question to start the campaign coverage w- wouldn't even make sense to them or it would it would simply bring a propagandistic response. That's that's definitely possible. Um, what we're still seeing in the United States is there is a difference between local politics and national. As soon as national politics gets introduced into the discussion, this, it goes into polarized camps and it's very repetitive. But if you are genuinely dealing with local problem solving in the community where people live, there's still a chance that politics can work, journalism can work, public debate can work, pluralism can work. There's still an opportunity for that. And it's in that context that the citizen's agenda might be the most useful. So, Jay, a survival guide for political journalism in this age when the media is under fire, when the mainstream media is mistrusted, when even to go into a community full of Trump supporters, it's becoming increasingly hard to to get people to take you seriously and, and even get people to talk to you in some instances. Some practical pointers about how the industry can contend with all of that. Well, I think journalists have to recognize what Washington Post former editor Marty Barron said, we're at work, we're not at war. That was his um, guidance about covering Trump. But sometimes the war comes to the press. And it would be naive to say that public service journalism doesn't have political enemies It does. There's no question that the right wing globally in Europe, United States, and Australia is going to try and chip away or destroy the public subsidy for public service journalism. It's on their ideological agenda. Now, in a situation like that, what sense does it make to say, we're not at war, we're just at work? There are people who want to destroy you. I think it's important for journalists to recognize that. Another thing, though, is show your work. It's the principle of transparency. Here's the data. Here's the study. Here are the people we interviewed. Here's the full text of the interview. We're open about how we came to our conclusions. Third idea, be more open about your point of view. I call it, here's where we're coming from, journalism. Because everything you do that shows you're not objective is potentially disabling criticism, and start treating politics as public problem solving rather than an inside game played by professionals. That would be a good idea. Lenore Taylor, you are looking forward to another election fairly soon. Um, It has to 
come by the middle of next year. How are you going to do it differently to how you've done it in the past? Well, to be honest with you, we're just starting to plan that because COVID has been a bit overwhelming for the last couple of years. But I think we are going to double down on the approach that we've taken in previous years, which is to focus more on policy and more on electric competitions and less on the you know, the national campaign and the rolling circus of the leaders' caravans. I think we've taken that approach in the past, but we've grown a lot since the last election. So I'm hoping we can do it better this time. I mean, Rick, is one of the problems that, you know, to prove that we are brilliant political journalists, to prove that we have this wonderful knowledge, to prove that we have our finger on the pulse, we actually become predictors rather than journalists we like to convey the sense that we know who's going to win because we're so very clever journalists love to teach the audience they love to correct the audience they love to show the audience that they have the inside track um, that they alone have been given this privileged access to information and their job is to impart it from on high a la Moses with the tablets on Mount Sinai except the tablets are kind of newsprint or you know TV bandwidth signals and it leads to this game where you know you see it during those leadership spills we spoke about where the journalists race to get the first numbers from inside the lockup and some of them are are so willing to get it done so quickly that they will get errant numbers or the numbers will be wrong and it happened in everyone I can remember recently and it's just like there is no reason for any of that we are not serving the public in that race we are serving our own egos and I think that is the problem we become hitched to the wagon of our own brilliance and of course that lets us down elsewhere and it lets our audience down my fellow americans and the people who brought me the dance delawareans i actually got the 2020 presidential election right but i made sure i didn't get it wrong by not making any predictions on air or in print I even had a stock response ready to go if presenters invited me to gaze into the crystal ball. I'm a correspondent, I would tell them, not a clairvoyant. That would form part of my personal survival guide. Don't make predictions. They can make you look stupid and they can skewer your coverage. You're always looking for confirmation bias, evidence that supports your prediction rather than challenges your thinking. In the reporting of Australian politics, I'd love to see less reliance on polls. Because if you want to understand why Canberra has become the coup capital of the democratic world, our poll addiction is a key reason. Perhaps editors should follow a simple guideline. Never put a poll on the front page of your newspaper. It's been a real treat to present this inaugural season of the podcast. And thanks for joining us on the journey. I've learnt an enormous amount over the course of these eight episodes, and hopefully you have too. This is an industry where your apprenticeship lasts a lifetime. So thanks to the reporters, editors, executives and media thinkers who shared with us their wisdom. I can only speak for myself, but I'd like to think that you've made me a better journo. Journo is produced by Deadset Studios for the Judith Nielsen Institute, which supports quality journalism and storytelling around the world. 
You can find out more about the Institute's programs and events at jninstitute.org. Make sure you follow the podcast in your podcasting app so you're alerted each time we release a new episode. Deadset Studios' executive producer is Rachel Fountain. Our producers are Margie Smithers, Nicole Kirby, sound design, How good is Bryce Halliday. Our managing editor is Kelly Reardon. And the commissioning editor for J&I is Andrea Ho. Hi.